about an aspect of what our practice is involved with that we could perhaps describe as opening our hearts. Coming to meditation as we do, I think many of us, despite perhaps the evidence of our experience to the contrary, still come with a, it's it's kind of actually refreshingly um, sort of optimistic, but we come with a, a sense of hope that this process could be one of a linear movement from chaos, conflict, confusion and pain to bliss, ease, peace and joy. And I mean we can kind of empathise with that, that wish for it to be that way. But what we actually see and what we I think come back to again and again is simply that this is not what happens. And what in fact perhaps is a more accurate way or a more useful way to understand the process that we're engaging in is not some sense of a direct movement from A, which is suffering, to B, which is bliss, that we can kind of track and know very precisely, but actually something more of a nature that is not so linear, that is not so predictable, and that we might see or understand as a process of opening. In our practice we have the opportunity and the invitation in fact to to explore, to examine, to begin to understand our relationship to life, to our life, to our experience, to the world. Particularly to become aware of, to see very clearly the habits, the patterns, the tendencies, the conditioned ways that we respond or react to what is going on around us and within us. And through that possibility of recognising what is actually happening, we also have the possibility of understanding and transforming that way of being, of relating, of reacting in the world. We've commented already and in some ways it's obvious but probably it does us no harm to remember again that life is not always easy. Kind of obvious. And yet life is not always easy. Meditation is not always easy. And yet what do we do with that reality? How do we respond to a life that is not always easy? or as we wish it to be? How do we respond to an experience that is not easy or that is not as we wish to be, wish it to be? One of the predominant tendencies that we can notice, our habits, our patterns, our conditioned ways of responding, is that when we're faced with something difficult that somehow feels threatening to us in some way, which we may or may not be particularly conscious or clear of why or how it is threatening us, but nonetheless we perhaps are experiencing a sense of feeling threatened by. Whatever it might be, often what we do is we kind of try and defend ourselves. We, we seek to build an armour around us. Sometimes we could think in terms of, it's like almost puffing up and in the... In the animal world, we can see, again, rather sort of 
a sweet humor and, and many of our own behaviors are, are not that different than what we see going on in the, the animal world, the natural kingdom of life. That animals, when they're threatened, they, they kind of puff themselves up a little bit physically. You see their, their fur stand up on end and if you've ever had a tingling feeling at the back of your neck when you felt a bit fearful or threatened, that's your body trying to do the same thing. To puff itself up so it looks bigger. So it will scare away whatever threatens it. And the, the classic example of this, in fact, is called the puffer fish, which is a flat, skinny little fish, but it has an airbag inside it, or a water bag, I'm not sure, probably a water bag, actually, since it's in the water. But when it's frightened, it sucks all this water and, and its body goes whoop, like that. Of course, it's not particularly mobile in that condition. So how we respond when we're faced with a threat, a difficulty. There's a story, a true story in fact, that I heard told by a friend of mine and uh, I've been pretty close to addicted to repeating it on every retreat I've taught since. Um, so you may have heard this before. But it's an actual transcript of a radio conversation between the um, US naval ship and Canadian naval authorities off the, case, off the coast of Newfoundland in October 1995. And it's a series of, I presume, sort of like those telegraph communications they have. But anyway, it goes from the American side. Please divert your course 15 degrees north to avoid a collision. Canadians responded. Recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. Americans this is the captain of a US Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Canadians, no, I say again, you divert your course. Americans, this is in capital letters. This is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic Fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north, that's 15 degrees north, or countermeasures will be taken to ensure the safety of this ship. Canadians, this is a lighthouse. <laughs> your call. We've probably been in a similar situation ourselves where we feel that we're somehow threatened and what we kind of do is we start kind of building ourselves up, sort of determining the rightness of our position, arguing the, the truth of our perspective, seeking to kind of push away or ask another person or situation to change to accommodate us. And we feel it energetically actually as a sense of hardening of, of a rigidity that comes into our body, into our mind. It's trying to somehow avoid a collision with life. But unfortunately for us, and in this case, as we see in the story, some things can't move. 
and other things can. And life is as it is. There are certain fundamental features to it that will not accommodate our demands, our pressure, or whatever degree of power or force we might seek or wish to bring to getting them to move out of our way. We are asked to learn to accommodate rather than to defeat our life, our experience, ourself. And clearly we can see that um, the board of inquiry after the Titanic went down was unlikely to have blamed the iceberg. Likewise, if a plane crashes into a mountain, no one blames the mountain. And yet, all too easily, all too often, what we find going on for us is a sense of hardening. And we harden because perhaps at some level, again, maybe more or less consciously, we feel like the, the threats or the, the experiences that are coming to us are somehow invading us. That we feel that if we don't harden, if we don't defend ourselves, if we don't push them away, that we will somehow be overwhelmed by them. And whether it's the insistent patterns of painful or difficult thoughts, the emotions that can arise, the sounds, the people that we might feel so closely packed around us in this room, so it may seem like there's hardly an inch in which we have our own space, physical sensations that seem to just come to us, difficult, painful perhaps, Insects are great for us. I don't know if you've been for a walk around the loop. And it's reasonably safe on Pleasant Street. Then you go down the side roads and it gets a little bit more difficult. But once you're on the back road, it's remarkably unpleasant. <laughs> it's, of course, we can do it as a practice, why not? Or an act of benevolence to feed the hungry insects. But what happens, and I, I've noticed this very clearly, as I start to get closer and closer to the far end, one actually starts to become a little bit, okay, when's it going to happen? When are they going to appear like hordes of these ravenous beasts? And whether or not one actually gets that far or not, there's a sense of kind of just tightening. And then very easily, if the deer fly do appear, and they're quite reliable, one of the few things perhaps, there's a sense very easily of kind of just tightening, hardening, just kind of feeling a rigidity in one's body that's a kind of a response to try and keep them out. Of course it doesn't. We can see that very clearly. It doesn't actually keep them out at all. And it actually makes the whole experience much more unpleasant. But because of that sense of feeling like this may overwhelm us, we feel often, again unconsciously, that we have no choice but to try and defend ourselves in that way. And this of course is... Is a, is a pattern that we, we may have learned at a time in our life when we had no other options, when we had no other possibilities but to try and defend ourselves, to try and withdraw from that which is difficult. And this, this is an aspect of human experience, to be impacted by life in that way. And even... In the story of the Buddha, it is told, and this is a, a rendering by uh, 
Joseph Campbell, which is not quite in the traditional form, but nonetheless I think gives the impression of what went on for the Buddha, the Buddha to be as he was then, when he sat down and made the intention to seek freedom, to understand what was true in that very place that he had sat down and to stay there until that should happen. And it's said that in the, in the tradition that he's challenged and assailed by Mara, who is the, the personification of ignorance, of craving, of confusion and of aversion, the kind of the, the way it's expressed as a, as a personification. But the little phrase from the way... Is it, did I say Joseph Campbell? I think I meant Matthew Campbell. Um, he expressed it. He said, Mara assailed him. Whirlwinds, rocks, thunder and flame, smoking weapons with keen edges, burning coals, hot ashes, boiling mud, blistering sands and fourfold darkness. I, mean, I don't know if you relate to that in your meditation experience. These were all hurled against the Bodhisattva, the, the Buddha-to-be. But the missiles were all transformed into celestial flowers and ointments by the power of Siddhartha Gautama's ten perfections, his perfection of the, the human qualities of possibility. And that, that sense of what it would be like to be, and perhaps we feel it, we experience it, to be overwhelmed by, or potentially overwhelmed by our experience, which... I think a number of you referred to the sense today in discussions of, of feeling something that was difficult going on and the sense that although it was possible to be with it in this moment, the potential for it to increase to the point of becoming overwhelming was something that tends to occupy the mind very powerfully and it's very hard to actually let go in that place. And in that place what tends to happen is that we feel our only option is to block it out, is to avoid it. And this has an effect on us because what we see happening here on the retreat of course is simply an expression and a reflection of what has perhaps been going on at times frequently or not so but certainly at times in our lives whereby we kind of harden ourselves to life. There's a line from the Simon and Garfunkel song that probably most of you know. It's called, the song is, I am a rock. And the line goes, I am a rock. I, am an, I won't try and sing it. You'd understand why if I did. I am a rock. I am an island. And a rock feels no pain. And an island never cries. The song is something of a glorification of that condition, but perhaps an ironic glorification of it. Because we are sensitive beings. This is one of the defining characteristics of what it means to be human. We are sensitive beings. We feel life very deeply. It touches us. And in that touch, it both challenges us and it nourishes us. Life, in fact, is almost constantly and reliably offering us a depth of contact which when we, depending on how we meet it, 
it's almost inevitably offering us both challenge and nourishment. And what happens when we actually feel the challenge of it to be too much? When we don't have the trust, the confidence, the experience and also of course the understanding which isn't taught to us in schools of how to meet this in life. When we don't have this, we seek to block it out. We, seek, we actually seek to numb ourselves to our life. There's something tragic in this. Because in numbing ourselves to our life, because it's too challenging, we equally numb ourselves or cut ourselves off from the actual nourishment and the vitality that our life offers to us. Just now before the talk, I took off my sandals and just went for a walk in the grass just to have a quiet few moments. And it just really struck me what it is to walk with bare feet in the grass. Just that sense of contact with my feet touching the tender, soft blades of grass. Something rather sweet, intimate. And yet I was also quite aware that in that grass could be a sharp stone, a piece of glass, a bee, all of which could be quite painful if I should stand on. And how kind of a lot of time, not just in what we see in our meditation practice, but in how we live our lives, we're building fortresses around us to protect us. And it's lovely to walk inside a nice, comfortable sandal as I have. It's a reliable sensation every time. It feels just the same. It's quite pleasant, in fact. They're good quality sandals, nice and comfortable. And yet it's just the same every time. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's something qualitatively different to let my foot touch the ground and not looking where it's being placed as one often isn't looking at one's feet in walking meditation. One doesn't know what it's going to touch, whether it will be sweet or sharp, soft or hard. One doesn't know. And yet there's something in that. There's something rather precious in that quality of contact where we don't know what this is going to be, where we are actually open to it, whatever it might be. When we come into meditation, when we come into a retreat, we practice as we have a sustained and ongoing cultivation of that quality of presence, of steadfast, warm-hearted connectedness and reconnection again and again to where we are. We're cultivating many different qualities of heart and mind, some of which are easier to measure and we often tend to measure the what we call concentration, the ability to stay with the particular object. And yet many other qualities are as important if not more so. The degree to, what we are, to, to which we are actually open to our experience, whatever it might be, is equally important as that. And yet we can't quite measure that, that particular quality. We can't say I'm fully open or half open or I had five opens in a row and then I lost it. It's just, it's kind of in that unnameable territory and yet we do feel the difference. Qualitatively we know what that means even if we can't define it in quantitative 
conceptual terms. And the process of meditation, simply by coming back again and again into our experience, it begins to soften the solidity and the hardness in the way we experience and the way we meet our life. It begins to dissolve the barriers that we have erected. It begins to strip away the defences, the armour. You don't need to want it to happen. It happens. You don't need to make it happen. It happens quite simply by itself. Sometimes we're not sure if we want it to happen and it still happens anyway. And we can feel like the degree of sensitivity that is coming, of tenderness, is actually just a little bit edgy for us. We're not quite comfortable and the tendency in that is sometimes to kind of want to sort of solidify things again, to get a little bit more predictable, a bit more firm and fixed in the way we are experiencing. And yet, while we might find it difficult to actually be consciously in that condition of starting to become softer, starting to become really more permeable to not just what is around us but what is within us. And we start to feel the touch of our life more, more directly, sometimes sweetly, sometimes poignantly. We start to recognise, perhaps, even though it's not easy, that in fact this, there's something about this possibility for opening into our life that is deeply and truly important. And that in our defendedness, in our hardness, in the apparent security that it offers us from threats and from danger, that something rather precious is lost and we perhaps begin to sense that it's not worth the price we pay for that security, that safety. That the hardness, the sense of solidity that we create around ourselves to hold things off, that we can feel sometimes just when you're walking towards someone and you're not quite sure who's going to give way, if you come from the other side of the world where I do, you're likely to get confused as to whether you pass people on the left or the right in this country and go the wrong way. Because we drive on the other side of the road. Um, and there's a, just a sense of, there could be a collision here. Sometimes one almost just notices energetically one's body just kind of sort of just puffs up a little bit. We're just kind of readying ourselves and then we kind of, it's almost like there's a force field around the two people as they approach and they kind of don't quite bump force fields. And we actually can sense that physically happening. And, the f- and, and yet, if we've been doing that much of our life unconsciously, when we first become aware of it, it seems incredibly solid. We actually sense that to some degree we are imprisoned in this armour that we have created for us, for ourselves that the, the way we hold a sense of defendedness, which again, it shows itself physically, it shows itself in the way we think and our thoughts sometimes sort of 
direct themselves out at things, people, situations that we don't like, that we want to be different, that we find difficult. That kind of harsh, judgmental, angry, insistent, kind of pushing away. We feel all of this and we feel the unsatisfactoriness of being caught in that condition. That we actually are closed down by it. And it can actually be a profoundly saddening experience to recognise that we feel closed. It's not bad news to recognise it to the extent that this is our experience. Because in fact the recognition of that process of closing down is the beginning of the process of opening up, of being able to reverse that conditioned pattern. Because what happens in that closing down is that we become unable to grow. As if we put on a shoe when we're very little to protect our feet and we never take it off. What would happen? We'd be crippled. We put on a lot of shoes in our lives, it seems. And just as a just as a lot of animals who have a hard protective shell around them, such as a crab, you know how they grow. They have to climb out of their skin. And uh, sometimes that's what we feel like doing in meditation. It feels like we're cli- wanting to climb out of our skin. It's so difficult to be in here. And yet, for a crab, if it can't climb out of its skin, and when it climbs out of its, sh- out of its shell, it's kind of soft and juicy and pink inside, and if anything finds it in that moment, it's in big trouble. So there's a reason to stay in its shell. But on the other hand, if it doesn't climb out of its shell, it can't grow and it dies. And that's a little bit like it for us too. That we, we actually need to be able to, in order to grow, in order to stay not physically alive, because actually we can stay physically alive and still be pretty uh, well bound in our armour, but in order to be truly alive, an aliveness that is actually awake rather than asleep, we actually need to be willing to grow beyond the safety or the apparent safety and the limitations of our, of our boundaries that we create around ourselves. And it's useful in this just to begin with the sense of our, our bodily experience and what that's like. We sometimes might wonder why is it that it's so hard to be in the present moment, to be connected to our body. So much encouragement, it sounds like a good idea, it even feels quite good some of the time when we do it. Yet it's so hard to be in our body. Some of it is to do with the habits and patterns of our minds and we'll speak more about that over these days, no doubt. But some of it is just to do with the fact that it's actually quite difficult to inhabit our body because it's uncomfortable a significant amount of the time. And we've noticed that. We've seen sitting here in our body, paying attention to our body, that it is uncomfortable and it's actually hard to be there. It's hard to be there. And that our response to pain discomfort in the body, the first response is often one of contraction, of tightening. Notice what happens when you find an area of difficult or painful sensation. What happens is we tend to tighten. It's like we're kind of trying to fight it off. We're kind of hardening against it. And yet the very effect of it is that 
Most pain is to do with extremes of heat and pressure at a primary sensation level. And it's like heat and pressure, we, we squeeze it. We squeeze it. Trying to somehow separate it from us or push it away from us, push it out of existence. And that intensifies it. It hurts more. And then sometimes we realise this is going on, we become conscious of it, we begin to relax. We can consciously direct relaxation, the quality of relaxing into areas of our body where there is tension or pain through the out-breath, which has a, an energetic quality of relaxation, of releasing, of letting go. So as we breathe out, we can just feel into those places of tightness or hardness or reacting against pain. And we can feel perhaps some release of that tightness. That doesn't mean the pain becomes less. In fact, the pain may become more. Sometimes if we've held our fist really tightly, if you ever should feel inclined to do this for an hour or two, when you unclench the fist, it will really hurt. But that doesn't mean it's getting worse. This is actually the condition improving. Because there's an opening through the hardness, through the rigidity, the solidity of the structures that we have built. And it's like we've starved our body of attention. Because it's hard to feel what it feels when we feel our body sometimes. There's a story of Mullah Nasruddin who once had a donkey and uh, uh, Nasruddin is a, a Sufi teaching figure who's regarded as both a wise man and a fool. Though one suspects his foolishness is simply to wake us up to our own. And Mullah had a donkey and it was a wonderful donkey. It did many good things for him. And yet it cost him a lot of money to feed it. It ate a lot of grain. And so he thought after a while he had a plan. He, and he, he decided, well, maybe if I fed that donkey less, it would be okay. So he halved its food ration. And it seemed to be fine. And then, since it was doing fine, he halved its food ration again. And it seemed to be doing fine. And after a few days and a few weeks had passed, he got it down to just one spoonful of oats a day. One small spoon of oats a day. And then, tragically, the donkey died. It's a sad story, really. And he was relating the story to his friends in the, in the market a little while after. And he said, you know, I was so sad because the donkey was doing so well. It was so wonderful, you know. I was sure that if we just kept going, I could have trained it. If it hadn't unfortunately died, I could have trained it to live on nothing at all. And it's like for us, our body has perhaps been asked to live without much nourishment. Because there's a nourishment that is given to the heart, the mind and the body when we actually unify our heart, our mind and our body, when they actually come together, when they are collected into the same place, the same space, the same quality of being, of presence, just as we do in this practice of mindfulness, of attentiveness, we actually start to nourish our body. And the absence of nourishment in the body is the hardness, is the tightness, is the 
the places where it kind of doesn't feel very alive because it hasn't had much attention. And we know how we feel when we don't get much attention. When those we care for, who we're close to, who we wish to be appreciated by don't seem to express it to us. It's difficult, it's painful, maybe we feel hurt. Coming into our body, it's like a reawakening of that relationship. Of a relationship in our life where we are more essentially whole. Where we are not so fragmented. Where one part of our being is not in conflict with another. Not pushing it away. And often when we feel difficult experiences, it's really asking for our attention. The last thing we want to do is have to feel it. Pain in our knee, grief in our heart, confusion in our mind. The last thing we want to do is have to feel it. And yet, it gets our attention effortlessly. And maybe there's a reason for that. It's actually asking for our attention because our attention is needed here. That's what it's saying, and saying it really effectively. Pay attention here. Something needs to be understood. Something needs to be held, to be felt. The process that happens when we're not conscious when we're not awake, of reacting in fear, reacting to that which comes to us that is unwelcome, that kind of leads us to build this sense of a a barrier around us, a sense of defendedness, defensiveness, where we we create create whole, whole structures of personality and of conversational patterns and ways of being in the world that just just keep us comfortable, that seem to keep us safe and yet leave us with a a kind of sense at some deep inner level of not really being able to rest, not really being able to be at ease because it's never quite enough. No matter how much defending we do, we never quite feel safe. We never quite feel really protected and we equally feel the sense of loss of our aliveness even though we may not conceive it in that term, in that way, we feel it and it shows itself by the way that we're looking for something to satisfy us, that we're constantly seeking for, searching after, one thing after another. And yet none of those things seems to do it for us. Because it's, it's not to be found in such ways. we create a a sense of a separation within through our army whereby we feel cut off from the world. It's like being put in prison. We, We become imprisoned in our structures. And what is it that's so difficult about being in prison? I can't speak personally, but just to imagine what that situation would be, one becomes cut off from all the things one wishes to have contact with. Still gets food, at least in our countries. Somewhere to sleep. No one attacks you. Well, at least while you're in your cell, you usually say. Maybe not. 
and yet one is cut off. And how much in that situation one wishes to reach out, to have contact with the world. And yet, I don't know if any of you saw the, the movie, the, how, what is its title of that? Shawshank Redemption, I think. There was a character in that movie who finally was released after some 20, 30 years and it terrified him to go back out into the world. It's not easy to free ourselves because we have to enter the unknown where it isn't so safe. And yet at some level I think we begin to more and more clearly understand that it is profoundly unsatisfactory to bind ourselves in a sense of limitation because of our fear. To be unwilling to enter into those places that are unsure, uncertain, unpredictable. Now how much of the activity of our life has been driven by fear, by the wish to avoid that which we do not wish to experience? How much of our life has that been? Probably a significant amount for most of us. Becoming really conscious about that is not to be pessimistic, is not to be critical of ourselves for that, but to really look and see what is the effect of living in this way. The Buddha said again and again, and I think rather wonderfully, to not take on board teachings or instructions as somehow sort of gospel commandments, no matter who should give them, whether great spiritual authorities or teachers or traditions or whatever, but to put into practice what we are invited or suggested to do and see what happens. And in fact, not just with teachings that we might receive, but with anything in our life, any way of behaving or acting or responding that we have, to examine what happens when you do this. And if it leads to benefit, well-being, to continue. If it leads to harm, to unwholesome results, then to cease that behaviour. And what happens with fear is that we kind of build ourselves an armouring. We, we kind of make certain places, places that we will not go. I do not want to touch this experience, this feeling of anxiety arising in me. I don't know about this. This could be a big one. I think I'd better keep it kind of at a safe distance. Or the sense of, of pain in my, in my knee and it's kind of increasing and it's getting bigger and now we have visions of the ambulance arriving at IMS and taking us away. And no, I, I don't want to go near that. And yet what happens is if, and we can't always do this, but if we are actually able to withdraw from it, what we find is we, we're in a smaller space. Our, our lit possibilities are limited and yet the fear has come with us and it finds something else within that smaller little world. And if we keep withdrawing, our world gets smaller and smaller. And we start to feel tighter and more closed and shrunken and compressed. And we feel the pressure of our life as a burden in that way. And yet what happens when we simply look at the fear and see it as fear? It's not fun. It's not pleasant. In fact, fear is one of the quintessentially unpleasant experiences. And it's one of those things that we will do almost anything to avoid because it's unpleasant. 
And yet if we can actually let ourselves acknowledge and be with the experience of fear itself, then we do not need to remove the object of the fear. We do not need to get rid of that which we are afraid of because what we're actually looking for is the end of the fear. The end of the power that it has over us. And this is not found through removing its object, that which we are afraid of, but by turning to face and to feel into the experience itself. This is not an easy thing to do. And yet to remember with fear that it often seems, in fact it inevitably seems to be telling us that if this happens then da 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 da, in the future something is going to be worse. But it's always an experience happening now. And the trick, the, the mirage that fear creates for us is that it makes us compelled or makes us feel compelled to have to get rid of or to fix or to attend to something that hasn't happened yet. And we can't. I think Mark Twain said, all of the worst experiences of my life never actually happened. We can't deal with it. We feel like, oh no, it's going to all go horribly wrong and I don't know what to do and I can't... It's true, you can't deal with it. You're not required to. You're not asked to deal with that. What you're asked to respond to is what is happening right now, which is the experience of fear. And the way to recognize it, it's not that difficult, in fact. One sees the thoughts going out to the future saying, what if this happens? I don't want this, I don't like this. I want to pull away, withdraw, avoid. And actually just turning to that experience itself. What is this experience of fear? Perhaps to feel where it is in your body. What does it feel like? What are the sensations of this experience? Can I feel its core? Can I feel its edges? Not feeling that you have to stay with it all the time, but just to touch it, perhaps to relax as you breathe out into the experience. And then, coming back again to your breath, coming back to the body. Sometimes if, if there's strong fear, really useful to pay attention to the places where you feel your body touching the ground. There's a balance, there's a sense of resting on the earth. And there's also a very clear contact there for you. There's a real sensation of solidity, of firmness, which is quite different to the, the agitation and the intensity of fear. And it provides a balance, it provides a larger space. We begin to discover that it's possible for us, not all at once maybe, perhaps not even a little at the beginning, but over time, gently, with a, a degree of courage and a willingness to to not be bound by the vision or the view of our own limitations that we have, that are really just the story of fear, not the truth of our life, just the story of fear. To not be bound by them, we actually find that we can feel into our life, we can feel our way back into our life. No experience, no condition, no history has in itself the capacity to exclude us from our life from the immediacy, the vitality and the nourishment of our actual living presence, our experience here and now.
And one of the ways that it happens for us that we we find it so hard to actually open into the difficult is that we feel it's very personal to me. That it's only me, it's just me, and it's like this for nobody else. And one of the really interesting things that people often comment on in groups is how when they hear other people speaking about things that are difficult for themselves that they can relate to, it actually isn't so difficult anymore. And that's kind of interesting because actually it's still the same experience they're having. The, the busy mind, the painful body, the raw and tender feelings. But when there's a sense of other people feeling them too, it's not just that misery likes company, but it's that we actually realise this doesn't mean something is wrong with me. We're not using it to make some statement or definition of ourself that is limiting, that is actually painful to us. We see that this is part of the nature of life and that it is an invitation to us to open, to awaken. And when we begin to open to it, when we begin to feel it more directly, we see that the solidity, the hardness that we experience, the sense of numbness or not really being in contact, is not absolute or fixed. And the things that we find threatening, the emotions, the sensations, the experiences that are most difficult for us, that seem to speak to us of a sense of solidity and permanence, and that threaten us with overwhelm because we feel somehow that they are forever, or they may be forever, and they'll keep getting worse and more. We come to see that our resistance to them is actually what makes them solid. That when we can actually soften in response to them, when we can actually allow ourselves to feel it, even though it's not easy, it allows it to move because it is the nature of all experience to move, to change, to flow from one expression into another. And that fluidity, that fluidity of experience, of allowing things to move, starts to express itself as a fluidity between our sense of our inner experience and our world. So that we're no longer so separate. So we don't necessarily experience or perceive ourselves as so separate from the world, so alone, so apart, so disconnected. Because we feel life moving through, touching us, and we can equally feel and sense that we touch life in that quality of open presence. It's like looking at the evolution of of life, whether one believes in evolution in a sort of Darwinian sense or not, just the progression of animals from what we call the so-called lower animals to the higher. They start off as soft, squidgy, sort of single-cell things floating around in water. And, and in one way they're kind of an animal or a plant, and in another way the water's just passing through them all the time. They're kind of very much at one with their environment. And then if you look, you see sort of things get bigger and then they get tougher and they get harder and they've got a skeleton on the outside initially. And then that becomes a bit limiting for creatures. You can't get animals with a skeleton on the outside that are very big at all, so they need a skeleton on the inside that allows them to grow. And there's a way that our practice is a cultivation of what could be called inner strength rather than outer armouring. 
a quality of inner strength that actually allows us to trust our capacity to release that armour, that sense of defendedness in which we so much of the time experience our life. And that quality of inner strength is a quality born of recognising and discovering our capacity to actually feel our life, to experience our life, to know it directly, to be with it in this moment. And as we deepen in that capacity, and we come back to this point again and again, whether we feel ourselves to be beginners or whether we feel ourselves to be very, very experienced beginners, It comes back to this so many times. Can we actually just inhabit this moment fully as it is? And we begin to trust that the answer is in fact yes. And that quality of wholeheartedly abiding in our life, we start to sense that life is somehow moving through that opening our heart is not a process of somehow having to get in contact with life because life is in contact with us. But it's almost like our heart is already open. We are being touched by life. It's like the front door of our heart is open. And when we close down, we kind of we don't stop feeling. We just simply imprison the feeling within a structure of solidity where it stagnates. And when we open up, it's kind of like the front door is always open in our heart because we're always being touched. But it's like the back door opens as well. And feeling is allowed to move in and through. It doesn't have to stop. It doesn't have to get stuck. We actually become permeable. We actually start to sense that the nature of what it is that we are and the nature of what it is that we are experiencing are not different are not separate, that we are not apart from what is happening. And therefore, we do not need to defend ourselves from it. And ultimately, of course, we cannot separate ourselves from it. We start to sense a quality of connection with the, the wholeness, not just of our being, but the wholeness of life. And the wholeness of life has a vastness and a capacity to it in which its wholeness is able to hold whatever there is in life that needs needs to be held. There's sort of like a cradling quality. Holding not in the sense of grasping or craving, which doesn't get a lot of good press and Dharma teachings, I'm sure you know, but holding in a sense of, of cradling as we might a baby or with open hands supporting that connecting with that sense of of life larger than just ourselves means that those things that feel too difficult for me to hold can be held by that which is larger, that which we are part of. And in this we start to sense a possibility for finding peace in the very midst of it all a peace that asks for none of it to be other than as it is. When we're not defending ourselves, when we're not armoured against the world, 
but open to it, open to its touch. We can be touched by the peaceful dimension of life. So could we sit quietly for a moment or two please? May all beings be free from fear. May all beings live with an open heart. May all beings abide in peace. I'm now for Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.